welcome to the Crazy Bird Podcast Season 2. My name is Violeta Kaminska and I'm your host and today I am with a wonderful guest, Martin Vaneski. Hello, Professor Vaneski. How are you today? Hi, Violeta. I'm fine. Okay, now I would, I would like to introduce, um, well, Professor Vaneski doesn't need much of introduction, but I still would like to introduce you to our listeners who might not be familiar with your work and with you yet. Martin Vaneski is a designer and artist based in San Francisco, California. Throughout his career as a graphic designer while specializing in book design and typography, Professor Vaneski has maintained a deep and continued interest in photographic process and abstraction. For the past several years, he has created new bodies of work in photography and photographic installation. Vaneski has an undergraduate degree from Dartmouth College and an MFA in design from Cranbrook Academy of Art. He has taught at Rhode Island School of Design, RISD, and ColorArts, and for over 24 years at a very special to my heart California College of the Arts in San Francisco, where he is currently professor in the graduate design program. The San Francisco Museum of Modern Art honored Professor Vaneski with a 2001 solo exhibition, and in 2005, his monograph, It is Beautiful, Then Gone, was published by Princeton Architectural Press. In 2015, Professor Vaneski was inducted into the esteemed Alliance Graphique Internationale, AGI. In 2018, San Francisco's Letterform Archive acquired an extensive collection of his work, studies, and process for their permanent collection. Welcome to the Crazy Bird Podcast. Thank you for accepting my invitation. It's my pleasure. Professor Vaneski, let's chat about how we met. <laughs> yeah, what's that laughter about, I wonder? <laughs> You were a graduate student. What what year did you begin? I think I graduated in 2014, so I must have started 2012. And I took your class, Form Studio. And I remember it was very memorable, and I really enjoyed the class. But in the beginning, it was very challenging, and I thought you were very, very challenging. So uh, let's chat about the class form studio, because actually form studio, that class, now I, I'm joking, although I'm not really joking as much, I'm serious, it was a very challenging class and awakening, it was a wake-up call for a new grad student who was stubborn. It took me a while to be convinced that things can be done differently, or oh, we'll get there, I'm sure you have a better wording, or your side, how you saw how I was working is slightly different, but anyway, I want to say, you had, there was an exhibit we had a few, was it a couple of years ago in San Francisco, where actually you selected some of your students' work, and it was, I think, over a decade, even more, right, from your form studio, and their work was shown in San Francisco. That's right, we had, we had a gallery show for uh, 20 years of of teaching this class. So it began in uh, 1999. And so I had collected 20 years of student work uh, and we put it all up in a, in a gallery. Right. It was a very challenging class. I already have said it three times, I think. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing, which is, you know, uh, I think sometimes I find that uh, my students tell me that in one of my projects now when they work on and they f find it frustrating. I tell them, trust me. But that. I don't convince my students uh, easily. Well, and then I remember I wasn't convinced myself. It was very strange. You gave us some objects in a paper bag, and I had no idea what those objects were. I think I figured it out later. It was a veggie strainer. And I thought, what am I supposed to do with it? How do I make images with that? And there was a 
um, uh, spool of thread. It was all bizarre. And then I decided, because I was really interested in that time in industrial design coming from interior design background, I decided if you want me to do something with it, well, um, then I'll do it. And I just built this, as you called it, chandelier. It was terrible, I admit. It was really bizarre. Well, you were not happy with the outcome and you gave me very harsh critique. And I'm sure you remember that. I really thought, I don't want to come back next week. I, I was done with the class. I decided, you know what? I'm going to show this guy that I can do it. I had still no idea what to do. And the crits were very, very harsh, I thought. But I think it was halfway through when I started. I was always curious, but then I started noticing something. And I was puzzled. And there was something I couldn't figure out what it was that kept me really engaged and curious so I kept going still not knowing exactly what it is that I was doing or what you wanted me to do and then I kind of discovered this world of weird spaces and time and that's how it kind of started and then from the form studio really I went in and visual and, and uh, photography and drawings I went into over the course of quarter semesters at CCA then you were my thesis advisor. I uh, I was hoping you would agree uh, to be my thesis advisor, despite the fact that the beginning was quite rough. And, you know, I was hoping that you will forget one day that chandelier. And as we both know, we often remind me of that chandelier. So you've never forgotten about it. And you actually talk about it to other people I know about that chandelier. There are jokes about it. So I still laugh about it. I have that image somewhere. Anyway, you did agree to be my thesis advisor. And we had all those fascinating conversations I've always waited for. I would go to your studio in San Francisco and would talk. I always expected you would probably crush all my ideas. And I remember one time I was uh, showing you my video, one of the videos, and you were really looking at me. And I thought that you were kind of going to joke about it. I looked at your face and you said it was really great. And I thought, wow, that was the big, that was really that really meant a lot to me to hear from Professor Vanesky that something I've done was great. So I have to t tell you that. And then we kept going with the videos and you were giving me feedback. And really, I have to say it was the form studio that took me on that path. I couldn't see it then when, when I was going through that process. But realizing later on, I realized that later on. And I remember also the book, Seeing is Forgetting. I think is that, that's the title, Seeing is Forgetting. Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. It's by Lawrence Weschler, but it's about the artist Robert Irwin. I feel like I'm living in the form studio every day, honestly. It's a blessing. I felt it was a curse at that time, but now it's a blessing. I, I'm looking, I always think that I'm looking through Martin Vanesky's lens. So now I said all this, do you disagree with anything what I said? Or maybe maybe you re have, your memories are different. Well, okay, so here's the thing though, that you went through it once, but I've gone through it, what, 23 times now? So your reactions and your confusion is very typical and i've known that all along uh i i know that you you talk about trust and that's kind of how you teach or your students you say trust me but i realize that that trust has to be earned i can't just demand it so part of my challenge is to convince the class that this is a reasonable way to explore so one way I do that is I, I try to figure out who is the most skeptical in the class, because I figure if I can convince that student who is the most skeptical and, and outspoken, then the rest of the class will come along. 
if they see that that student can be convinced. And in your particular class, you, Violetta, were the most skeptical and the most outspoken, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, now, I, really? didn't, I didn't know you at all at that point, right? That's the first time we had met. But you were also not shy in explaining your skepticism about this whole process or your frustration. So I felt that I can't just demand that you accept this. I needed to convince you. And, you know, the, the whole point of the class is that it isn't an individual. Uh, it's not one on one. So while you're having you're struggling with it, you're also seeing all the other students some of whom are struggling more than you, some of whom have found a way. And so part of it is seeing and learning and slowly absorbing what this is. Now, I know to the listeners, this all sounds very mysterious, but it really is about um, about using photography primarily, although there's drawing as well, to the camera to explore, not just record. It's to use it as a way to reimagine the thing you're looking at uh, by looking at it in new eyes and not thinking you know what it's supposed to be doing. So um, it, it takes a while, particularly someone who's um, fairly, you know, ha has had a whole professional life like you had. Uh, in that you have pretty much learned the ways to do things and you've learned the ways to see things. And when those ways are taken away from you, not just you, but any student, uh, there is a lot of resistance because suddenly something that you've relied on, uh, a skill that you have made your career on is suddenly pulled away from you. Students will fight back and resist. And I have to accept that. And that's why I say I have to develop a trust. And part of that trust, though, is to be giving honest critiques. And so you say they're harsh. And I would say they may be they may seem harsh at first, but they are absolutely honest. And I always try to explain to the students, although they don't always hear me, that this often it's my opinion. It's just my way of seeing what I'm seeing. And so much of the critique isn't for me to decide what's good or bad, but to suggest alternative, alternative strategies to talk about what will you do next. So it's always about doing something, analyzing what you have done, and then from that analysis, deciding what to do next. And that is something that is so not part of the design strategy that is a, a mode of art practice, which is an iterative practice. Designers don't often do that, particularly when they're just beginning. They'll do something and they'll bring it to the teacher for the teacher to say, this is good or this is bad. And my challenge is to get you to become your own critic and you to be able ultimately, and this is, it's a whole semester long of slowly developing this, you to start looking at the work, analyzing what is working, what is not, what is meeting your expectations, what is not, what is surprising you and what is not, and then deciding what the next step is. So eventually, at first, at first, I help along with that dialogue, but I hope by the end of the semester, that dialogue starts to be part of your natural way of working, if and only if you want to use this process. So 
I also try to explain to the class that not all students, not all designers are, you know, enjoy this process. They don't all want to work this way. And this is just one way of doing design research. In this case, it's researching form and it's researching the experimental process. But if you want to do it this way, this is the strategy. So really what I'm trying to create is just another tool in the student's toolkit that they can use. They may not use it for 10 years, Mm -hmm. but they've got it there and they can always recollect what that was like when Mm -hmm. they worked that way. And you know, it's true. I said that, you know, the critiques were harsh because that's how I saw them. I wasn't used to critique for a while. I was out of school at work. That wasn't the case. There, are no, there were no critiques of that sort. So it seemed harsh, but I, I don't want to say once I understood the reason behind them and I understood that they were necessary actually to move forward because without them, they wouldn't, not, they wouldn't be moving forward. And also that there was my obviously um, defensive mechanism. That's how I perceived them harsh because I was defensive. But I craved those. I expected. I don't even know when it happened. The switch happened. First, there was this concern like, oh, another crit. That's going to be another crit. Oh, geez, this is going to be a tough, another tough class. And then I remember I was expecting a critique and at some point you really I thought you were too nice <laughs> talking about work I'm like what's wrong why isn't he but you were honest well, I expected honest like you said honesty the critique so I that's what I wanted and I, I didn't want to hear that my work was great that's well you also well, you know the other thing is being in the class you saw that I was this way to everybody I right, wasn't, right. it wasn't like I was singling you out oh definitely so you could see that and and what I hope is that eventually you see a connection with what I'm saying and with how the students are progressing right and you did you know you began by being a difficult student but by the end of the semester I would say you were either the best or one of the best um, not just as a student but in the work you were doing mm-hmm. like once you once you cross that line and started to understand about trying to discover the essence of something instead of just mm-hmm. a picture of something. Right. You just ran with it. And mm-hmm. it was really exciting to see. To me, it was, I think I finally let go because first I was, I think that's what I see sometimes well, in general with students we see. Sometimes we try to, we're trying to guess what the professor wants. And, you know, then it's like, do you like, and I hear sometimes, and I joke about my students about it because they ask me, do you like it? And I say, it doesn't matter. Does it work? What do you think? I'm interested in what you think about it. So I think I'm using your own technique in my teaching. And it's not something I think about every day, but I really apply it to my own teaching because I really think it works because then the conversation starts. I don't want to be the person always telling somebody what to do, how to do. Yes, that's my role too. But then I want to have a conversation. I want a student to look at their work and just be their own judge of that work and be able to move forward. Just talk about it honestly. The the big problem with this though is that it isn't the the business model does not particularly support that. The business model generally supports students who constantly ask permission, who don't have their own sense of what is good and bad or what is right and wrong. Uh, The business model wants their employees to be fairly docile and polite and ask the art director for permission for things and not get argumentative. And uh, 
that's why I think of this more as an art model, because the artist often has to make these decisions on their own and uh, start to develop that kind of confidence. Whereas a lot of design is, is, is a lot of the design profession is designed to take that confidence away from people so that you, you can be told what to do. And I, that's just not how I want to work. And that's not how I want to teach students, particularly graduate students, which is who I, I primarily work with. Mm-hmm. I show my students, you know, the video, uh, I think it's called Beautiful Then Gone. This video is on my list of uh, recommended videos to watch. Well, you've been kind and you agreed to be a guest speaker in my classes too. So it's always really fascinating for me to see how my students respond to those meetings, because to them, it's a discovery. And just how you talk about process, creative process, and it's very refreshing. And also it's a validation that they can explore. It's okay to play and just to see what's happening in whatever that playground, creative playground is. I remember during one of your presentations, you showed us a photo of your setup of a studio, a few cameras, and you said something really important and something that spoke to a lot of students. You said, if you set up your PlayStation and just keep it somewhere. It can be a section on your desk or in your room. And if you just go back, to it, it's easier to go back to every day rather than if you set it up and then clean up after an hour, you put your cameras away or put everything away because it's just, it feels like a chore. And every day to set it up and then take it away seems like a lot of work, especially for art or design students who are really busy in their daily schedule. And it's just, nobody wants to do it every day. And it's interesting, it's a small thing, if you think about it. And yet, it was a big, big revelation to quite a few of my students. And since your talks, I have a number of students telling me they have their PlayStation or their experimental station. And it's not much space because students very often do not have much space, but they realize that it's so much, so much easier to produce work. That's right. And, you know, I don't have much space either. I work out of my own apartment at this point, and I had to turn the bedroom into uh, the photo studio where I have everything set up and it's permanently set up. And in order to do that, that means I sleep on the couch, which I've done for several years now, because to me, it's more important to have immediate access to all the different things I might want to do than it is to have a comfortable bed, I suppose. I, I sleep better knowing that I have the photo stuff set up And, you know, you say it's a small thing and it may seem like a small thing, but it becomes a huge thing because our our default as designers has become, I'll just do it in Photoshop, Mm -hmm. like, or I'll just look for an image as opposed Mm -hmm. to shoot my own. But if shooting your own is as easy as looking it up, then there's a good chance you'll shoot your own. But you're right. If it means I'm going to have to drag out the lights, I'm going to have to set everything up every time I want to do it. Uh, that's really that's really cumbersome. And it's unlikely that you'll do it. I mean, I know because I know myself and I know students. I've been teaching for long enough. This is also another example of that. It isn't necessarily the business model. There are a lot of design studios <laughs> that I have visited that like to keep the place spotless, that like at the end of every day, everything has to be put away and cleaned up as if no one was in there. 
And I always find that really fascinating because it seems like it's it's more of a it's it's more of a way to prove to clients just how clean everything is. It's it's this modernist kind of imagined uh, office space, as opposed to it being a working creative space. So I think one thing that's really important for everybody is to really design the space the way you want to work. If you're going to work completely digitally and that's and you work better in a clean space, that's fine. Then do that. But if you really need to have that kind of stimulation around you, which is how I work, then make sure that you're going to be allowed. So this is one thing is like when you're looking for a job uh, or, you know, the thing is to interview the, the, the potential employer to find out, do you have a dedicated photo space? If I want to work a lot with a camera and a setup, is there, will you have a place available for me to do that? If I want to be able to cut things up and work by hand, is that going to be a problem here? Will there, there it be accommodated? And I think that's really important because if you think you're going to be able, you want to use the camera, but the office does not uh, encourage that, you're going to be really frustrated and it's going to be really hard because you're going to have to set everything up every single time and then you're going to have to put it all away every single time and you're going to eventually not do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think also it's interesting you said, you know, you have a small space. I think at this point with, with the pandemic, we all have, I mean, not all, but very often we have small spaces. Um, art students uh, had to move back very often and decided to move back home because we are virtual still, right? So everybody's really, um, now I'm kind of more and more going back on site uh, in businesses. and But still, I think most of us still stays in our own homes, very often apartments where space might be limited, especially in cities. So that's really important too now because... I, I hear often complaints now I live at home that became my workplace and it's just kind of challenging. I myself, I decided to turn my dining table into my desk because that's where I work all day long teaching virtually, but also creating my work. So it's just I made that choice too. And I, I do have my little section where I play with paper. There are some images I'm working with and it's just very important for me to have it there. And I don't organize it every day because I cannot imagine cleaning it up every day and putting it away. It's just my working space. So that's what it is. And that's how I'm dealing with it. And I, I just accepted the fact that's how it is right now. Right. And I would say that even though, yes, students are maybe working from home or working in their apartment, the one advantage they have is they can design that the way they want. They own the mm -hmm. space. And so they can turn thing, turn the dining room table into something else. And then, you know, eat on your lap on in a chair instead. It's all a question of balancing and it depends on where you want to prioritize. And, you know, people will make different decisions and that's fine. Okay, so talking about creative spaces and producing creative work and experimenting, you've been doing that all your career, really. So you, I remember also I brought my USF students to your studio in San Francisco a few years ago. And my students were really impressed with your, not only your studio, but your creative process and how you approached image making. There was one, uh, I don't remember which one, it was Wes, you were working on Wes Anderson's, one of his books or one of his movies. And I remember the background, you were explaining how the background for some, um, for example, for some pages, uh, background was fabric. You were using backgrounds fabric. Uh, you were uh, also uh, suggesting 
uh, for example, waves, right? So there was kind of, uh, you were implying waves through the, uh, the way the fabrics were positioned and the color. And you're explaining what, what was happening. There, there were so many, literally and metaphorically, so many layers applied to the design and the concept. The students found it really fascinating. Like you said, it would be easier just to put a blue background behind, right? Why to bother to go to the store and look for fabric? And But the result was just mesmerizing. And I remember we had a big conversation um, in the class afterwards. And actually, we're working on a, on a books. And students designed their books with different approaches. They're really inspired by what you told us and what you showed us. So that creative process, I think, is present uh, throughout all your projects, right? So with your clients. And, and I'm talking about graphic design. In a second, I want to move towards photography because that's another very fascinating world of Martin Vaneski. But can you tell us a little bit how you approach graphic design and typography? I feel really sorry I didn't get a chance to take your typography class at CCA. Your approach to typography, your approach to image making is very, very, very unique because graphic design, we all know, it's a big field, really. And I think our listeners, when they hear graphic design, they have ideas what it is. But, you know, in your case, when you look at your work, I have sometimes friends telling me when they see photographs online or on Instagram, they say, oh, it looks like Violetta's. And then they look and like, oh, because it is Violetta's. So it's kind of funny that without knowing whose work they look at, they kind of recognize it. And I feel that's the case with your work. I'm not saying that the work always looks the same, but there is something characteristic about it and unique. It's not just a typical spread. We're looking at pages and text sitting on page certain way. It's just there's this uniqueness, Martin Vaneski's uniqueness. I, I work with materials all the time, which is one thing, as you mentioned, using fabric in book design. Uh, so I, I collect lots of materials that I have over the years uh, for different projects, but I never throw anything away. So along with the materials are lots of scraps of things that I cut out. Um, when I, I, I was raised thinking of typography as being a hand skill, my uncle was a calligrapher. And so when I first started learning about lettering and even just, you know, drawing letters from the alphabet, it was the act of drawing that was part of it. Um, so I always approach projects when I can through a tactile strategy starting to bring things together, even if ultimately it needs to be digitized. Uh, the idea of how one thing sits next to another thing or one material next to another material is really important to me to, to develop a sense of resonance. Uh, now, the thing to, to know, and I, I try to explain to the students too, is that I didn't start out this way. Um, it, it's taken me many, many years to develop this. So this process isn't like I looked it up in a book or I just started one day doing this process. Um, it didn't even begin until well into graduate school. Uh, mm -hmm. And then after that, it just slowly developed. And I, as I slowly started to work um, to, to see how the process can uh, translate into commercial projects, into real graphic design, instead of just experimental work that never is client-based. So it's really always about exploring. It's about surprising myself with uh, the way that objects can start to become metaphoric. Um, I, I had a 
part, a lot of my work had originally been editorial. And so I was interpreting uh, fiction, uh, interpreting articles in Speak Magazine. And so in that case, and we didn't have much of a budget, so I would have to use very simple materials I had on hand to imply uh, uh, relationships that are going on in a story, for example. And again, that took a long time to, to start to feel comfortable in doing that. Um, and I'm always working so that I, I often don't know whether something is working or not. And by always challenging yourself, then you know you're always kind of dipping into new territory. And I try not to repeat myself if I can help it. Uh, <clears throat> but, but like I said, I, I keep all these materials. But the thing is, the nice thing about materials is every time you pull them off the shelf, you're intersecting them with something new. And the way you might be photographing them or the way you might put them on a scanner, it's always going to change. And so a lot of this is to stay really observant mm -hmm. as things are happening, as you're starting to think about the, the topic you're working with or the, the event that you need to illustrate, whatever it is, that you start constantly trying to match what's happening in the text with what's happening with the materials that you're working with. And you try to find connections. And even if those connections don't ultimately work, it's still a way of thinking, a way of trying to bring these things together. And so that's really the essence of the process. But it is a long process and it's a slow process. And that's another thing that I try to explain to students is that you need to give yourself time to let these things develop. And if you don't give yourself time, you'll just jump to cliche because that's the, that's the shorthand that designers can use when they need to. And in order to really get beyond that, you need to allow things to develop organically and slowly. Mm -hmm. And again, that's another thing that is not necessarily championed in design practice. Right. But it's why usually when I teach a class, I give, when I can, I just give a single project for the entire semester, because it really gives the students a chance to look through all the details and to slow way down, which was a lot about your work, young lady, when you were doing your videos. Right. In fact, the whole notion that you move to is the idea of slowing down. Mm -hmm. and, and it's funny, it, as you know, really, I'm not the slowest person. No, you know, you're right? not. And, and in fact, you know, the, as you recall, you had been doing everything. You had been making these videos that were these rapid, super mm -hmm. fast, intense, which is very much like your personality. But right. you were feeling frustrated. You were right. feeling like, oh, I just I can't, you know, it's just making me stressed out. And then the question I said was, what would you like to be doing? What, what do you wish? How do you wish the world was? And that's when you said, I wish it were a lot slower. Well, then do that. And that's when you started taking the camera and going on walks. And you really took your time. And that made you like super, super observant of, mm -hmm. of birds, of things happening, of the relationship between the natural world and structure. And that's very much the kind of process that I use, is the mm -hmm. slowing down enough to let things start to happen, let things intersect not forcing things to intersect. It, I, I think it, it's made all the difference in my work. It's certainly made the difference in your work. Uh, talking about that, I think I thought at that time, because everything, I'm, I'm living this fast-paced life, that 
slowing down and going fast doesn't work together. It's either or. And I think through my work, I learned that I actually enter that word, I, world. I do slow down when I create that work. I realized, and I think it's very impossible, I don't have to be this person 24-7 that is in this kind of nirvana state or whatever it is, meditative state, that sometimes I wish I was. But even if it's five minutes, or even now, you know, it's talking about video work. Sometimes my videos are in one minute or 30 seconds. It takes a lot of time to create a 30-second uh, long video. But still, when I watch it myself, I get fooled all the time. Although I created it, the work really works. I, I, I just slow down and I just you know, enter that world for 30 seconds. I find it very recharging. It's like a power nap to me, you know? I, 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 bet, I bet people are really surprised after seeing your work to meet you in person. Oh, always. Because you are, right? You're, I think they're thinking that they're going to meet someone who's just very calm and zen-like and walks slowly and probably is wearing long flowing Feathers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're not. But, but then people are surprised when they meet me. Uh, they, they think that when they see the work and they don't know who I am, they assume I'm like a 26-year-old skateboarding guy. <laughs> Aren't you? Yeah. No, <laughs> you know, that, that's the thing. And, and the fact that it's a slow process. I slowly develop these things and it's, it's, it's kind of who you are in your mind. And even mm -hmm. the, the process of how you make your work, like you said, isn't necessarily who you are all the time. Right. It was just the day. Well, now I'm in Savannah, Georgia, and it's really hot around the 80 degrees. And I was having my morning coffee sitting outside and uh, just listening to birds. And just before that, I was really talking and doing things and moving. And I thought, I just need to sit outside. And it was five minutes. And I was completely in a different state of mind. And immediately I had an idea for a video, obviously. So that I already was thinking about it. But after five minutes, I felt like I took a day off. It was five minutes. I always feel, and that's for me also, I don't know if I have prepared for my work, but I do think there is some sort of subconscious. I'm not pr probably even aware of it. It's just how I kind of enter that state of mind. Maybe it's a few minutes of slowing down, or I call it sometimes spacing out. I will make my morning coffee and I'm waiting for water to boil. And I sometimes, sometimes I run around, prepare my morning, uh, but very often I would stand there and wait for the water to boil. And there's that moment where my mind, I, I, I don't know where my mind is, but there's something happening, some sort of slowing down. And, you know, five minutes later, I'm really moving again. But that's, I think, the way how I prepare for my next project. So back to you, um, you know, birds took over as usual. My life is sometimes hijacked by birds. So now about photography, Professor Vaneski. What happened, you know, talking about machines, you've been, you've been uh, creating, you started this new series a few years ago, I think, right? When, do you remember when you started working on a new series of your machines? I think you worked uh, on it a long time ago, but there's a new series of photography that started. And you and I often talk about photography. And also, I'm always curious, ask, I asked you to define the term photography, because how we see photography, it's like me. I took a picture of a bird. It's a photo. But Yours, again, is experimental. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's, it's, it, a lot of uh, what I do actually came from the Form Studio class. So and it, it is, in a way, of me giving myself the same assignment. And one of the things that I always want 
students to know is that I put myself through that same process. So when I'm being harsh to the students, I'm also being harsh to myself. And I really look at my work and ask those same questions and make the same demands. Um, I've used photography. Well, my dad was a photographer. My dad was a wedding photographer. So I had been around cameras uh, all my life, really. Um, but I didn't start thinking that I could use my own photography in my design work until grad school, really, when like that, those were the resources we had. Uh, and, and that was still well before uh, digital cameras. So um, I, I graduated from Cranbrook in 93. So uh, even, even just the digital realm was early. Uh, we didn't have laptops back then. Uh, getting access to computers was a complicated process. You had to sign up for time slots and all. So I was using a regular camera with regular film and that had to be processed, all of that. So, so you had to be a lot more uh, careful about the number of shots you took, uh, making sure you have the right film, you know, the number of rolls of film that you could pay for processing, whatever you needed to do. So, uh, but when I, after I graduated and I started working for Speak Magazine, I guess that was one of the first places, uh, I just started using my own photography for that. And the best way I found of uh, interpreting uh, the editorial, the articles, was to start working with abstraction uh, and to abstract the ideas. Uh, at that time, the photography was really just a tool to use in order to illustrate a text. Um, eventually, I started photographing materials just for their interest. And then I started to put them up on the walls of my studio and filling up the space with photography because I, I like to have that visual stimulation. I also realized that when all of this is when I then moved into the realm of digital photography um, is that when everything, all, all the images are just in folders uh, on your, on your hard drive, uh, you'll forget about them. And I didn't want to forget about them. I wanted to always be able to see everything simultaneously, right? To have that access. That's all, again, it's part of that access, which includes visual access. So I started putting them up on the walls, uh, just using push pins and all. I found that the abstract images were the most interesting to me. And I started to work more and more with the materials that I collect. I, I collect a lot of things. And in that, in that video, which is on Vimeo, you can see me at the uh, scrap, right? Where I'm actually looking through objects and things. And so I started to take apart machines. And then the thing that started to interest me was not any individual photograph, but how different photographs start to work together. And it always was more interesting to me when they were abstract because they were pure form and shape. And because of that, because you couldn't name them, right? You couldn't look at that and say, that's a, um, that's a lamp, right? That's a button. They just start to become form, then they could kind of merge together more easily. And as they merge together, you develop these resonances, you start to develop a logic and a structure. Uh, which is how all of what I'm doing began. And it was very much aligned with Form Studio in that I asked the same questions. 
I try to develop a sense of how images sit together and fit together and then can be interpreted as a whole or how you could start to mass large numbers of pictures together. And some of the installations I do work with hundreds or thousands of photographs, how they start to create kind of communities of resonance, communities of shape or color uh, or strategy and and how those communities start to live within these larger geographies in a in an architectural space. So that's all part of that same process of, of looking at communities of form and how they start to merge together. So whether I'm working with type or I'm working with images, a lot of it is just that same sensibility that I start really uh, uh, enjoying. And it's a constant challenge to find ways of putting images together. Mm. Nature. You've been traveling recently, right? You you went, you did some hiking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. To, to Death Valley and to right. Brand Canyon. Even from your pictures, pictures of nature, I personally see a connection with even how you arrange the images. Is that true? Yeah. In fact, I, I joke that when I, I, I'm looking through the camera, I say, hey, here's a, a nature's form studio happening right mm -hmm. here. Because it's really, if you look at a lot of the formations, there really are different forces that are put, pushing against each other to create the forms. And to be, and it, it just is fascinating to me. So whether I'm watching it at, uh, as these natural forces or I'm in my studio pushing forces onto a piece of paper or a piece of plastic, they're very much related in that mm -hmm. what you're seeing is a record of different kinds of forces Uh, reaching some kind of moment of balance, right? Whether it's erosion and and structure, or it's a, a, a one force that's bending paper and another force is, which is the light being cast on it, and starting to understand that the camera, that's what the camera is really capturing there. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, and I, I started to work with natural elements in one of my last um, um, installations. I went out to Golden Gate Park and I, I did little clippings of different bits and pieces. But what I was interested in as I worked with flowers and plants, as they started to dry up and decay, I was photographing them not just as pretty flowers, but also as bits as they start to turn to dust on, uh, beneath the camera. I was just continuing to photograph them. So in the installation, I bring in all these different phases of plant life and, and death and how they start to merge also with the mechanisms that I'm creating. So with the, with the metal and plastic objects are also merging with the, the natural forms that I'm, I'm. But I remember also, if I remember correctly, the, that particular work, you had a very light white background. Yes. And it was, uh, to me, it was very distinct because I feel like very often in your, your background is either black Or it's just, it gets busier with images that are overlapping. Like you said, the machines, the machines are really taking over. And I feel maybe machines are, it's just there, I, I think the texture is slightly different. And just the, when I think of a machine, I think of the weight. So it's even I, I, visually, I feel like there's more weight to that. And, and even you talk about uh, maybe plants and uh, flowers that were decaying, na decaying nature. I remember that image was just like celebration of life. It was very, it, there was no heaviness to it. 
it was just lightness and it felt like um, there was this kind of life coming and energy being portrayed of nature. So it's interesting because I didn't get a sense, you know, of decay or death. No, no, because uh, I, well, it, the, the installation runs three floors and the bottom floor actually does have a ground. There's grass and sky and a little bit. And at the very top, you do see also clouds and sky too. But really in this case, it was the idea that as the machines come apart and as the, the flowers and things start to come apart, they start to hover and float in space. So mm -hmm. the machines kind of ascend up to heaven, the little pieces. So as you go higher up, it breaks down into smaller and smaller little units. And the same with the, the flowers, that as they fall, they break into smaller and smaller pieces, which it, it may be decay, but they're actually returning to the earth to mm -hmm. start over again. So yeah, it really is was more of a celebration in that mm -hmm. case. And it wasn't about, it, it was nothing heavy or sorrowful about it. Where's the installation? It's at the Delta Dental offices in San Francisco. I see. And is it permanent installation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So another question I had, like I mentioned before, you work a lot, I think, with black and white, right? Yes. Is there a reason why you choose to work with black and white? Yes. Uh, it's pretty much the same reason that I make all my students work in black and white. Uh, because, well, so I, I, you know, I do use color. I pr primarily use color in larger installations uh, because I think it really dissipates the color and I can use a lot of different colors in that space and there's enough room to work with it. Uh, originally, I was working all in color and a couple of things. One, I found that people tended to like the work because they liked the color. So if something was predominantly green and the person happened to like green, they'll like it. And it's like, well, that's not the point of the piece. All right. I'm not making things to, you know, coordinate with your decor. I'm really interested in the notion of green or the different shades of green. So I decided uh, also to, that as a challenge to myself to remove all color so I can really concentrate on the structure and the form. And that's what I have my students do because uh, because color is so easy to use these days, everything is in color, uh, color printing, the color monitor and all of that. Uh, the default now is in color where with photography, that wasn't always the case. Color was expensive and black and white. You could process and print yourself. Uh, and so I, I really wanted students, if they're going to use color, that they use it with the same care that they would use any other element. And so that it wouldn't just be washed over with whatever color happened to be there, that it was strategic. So I decided to challenge myself. And I originally, this was back in like 2015 or so. And that's when I started doing the machinery pieces. Um, I started to challenge myself and say, let's just remove color for a while. And it was going to be like six months or so just to get it out of my system and then slowly bring it back. But that was, what, six years ago, and I haven't found a need to come back to color, except when I do the, the installations, and then I move into color. But I'm actually very comfortable in black and white, and I feel that I have not exhausted all the possibilities there. 
And by removing color, it gives me actually more freedom. And uh, that's another lesson that I like to tell my students is that by really limiting your variables, you actually give yourself a lot of freedom because there's a lot of things you don't have to worry about anymore. And if you remove color, then you can really focus on other things like the typography, like structure um, and all of that. And so I feel that it actually has been beneficial to not have to deal with color myself. So what are you up to these days, Professor Vanesky? What's happening? Well, I'm always making new new pieces. And because of COVID, uh, in general, the I, okay, so the main thing I do when I, when I work, I, I mainly design books. And, you know, and, and that's a very meticulous, whole different kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it has to do with developing a system and a structure and working with typographic detail and all and very methodical. And I really like that. That's, again, the main amount of work. But that has slowed down because a lot of the work I did were with museums. Mm-hmm. And institutions and since they all had to shut down uh their their schedule for publications has been you know a little haywire uh, well, a lot of things have been put on pause as they try to figure out what their schedule is going to be so it's actually given me a lot more time to work with photography and so i am continuing i'm working always on several different kinds of projects but they all tend to work together and so ideas from one start to get injected into another and they find their ways to blend and meld. And again, because my cameras and everything is just in the other room, I can easily move back and forth between that and then working with the images digitally. I pin them together. I have like right behind me, which you can't see, but I have I have a board that I have photos pinned. That you can I see. can see it. You can see I can see you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm always combining. Now, one of the things that has been interesting is that for a long time, my photography work and design work needed to be separate. And that was because once you move into a different field and a different way of thinking, and I was moving from graphic design into photography, I wanted to be able to show my work within photographic terms. I didn't want to be thought of as a graphic designer who does a little photography on the side. I, I really wanted to take it really seriously. And this was a big decision I made. I made during a sabbatical mm-hmm. that I had uh, in 2016, 2017. So that, that really required me to understand the mindset within photography, the way that things are analyzed, the way that they're talked about, what is valued and not valued. And I realized that whenever I would meet a, a curator, someone in photography, if I told them up front that I was primarily a graphic designer, that changed their whole way of looking at my work. And suddenly they thought of me as a bit of a dilettante, as someone who makes surfaces look nice, who moves things around and knows how to make things pleasing. And strangely enough, that was considered a lower form of photography. Like they wanted to have the artist statement. They wanted to have something serious behind it. And it really baffled me. At first I'd said, okay, that's what I'll do. I will go ahead and, and put in a backstory. And that's where I came up with the new machinery. Originally, those were just called construction one, construction two, construction three. But I realized I needed to give it content. And so I started to call them the new machinery because I had been taking machines apart. And so putting them back together with the photographs, it's the new machinery. And that led to its own kind of metaphors, its own ways of thinking about it. 
But very recently, I started to think, you know what? Photographers, you know, they, they like to claim that there's a lot going on deeply beneath the surface, and there may very well be. And so there is with me too. But a lot of what they do is work on the surface and make things look nice in their own way. Or that's what they're, they're working with the surface. And I decided that, you know what? I'm not going to deny that. I'm going to, in fact, embrace that. And I am going to actually bring in all of my design strategies. And if you look on my Instagram, you'll see there's a lot that are just these rectangles that are moving in space. And they are exactly that. They are taking pictures and putting them next to each other without any kind of messing around. I'm not trying to give the illusion of anything. That's exactly what they are. And I'm moving them around to make them look nice. And if you don't like that, that's, you know, in other words, I, I, what I'm really trying to get is an optical response. Now, sometimes I put them within a photographic situation. Like I have a photograph of one of my chairs that is done photographically, but then I will slap these rectangles right on top of it to draw the attention that I am working with a series of rectangles. In fact, even when I was doing all of the new machinery, I let the rectangles, I work mainly with four by six prints, and I let the rectangles that surround the photograph show up. I don't mind letting people know that these are a series of, of rectangular black and white material that are overlapping each other, that are coming next to each other. And that's just the way it is. And I feel that I, not only do I not want to apologize for that anymore, but I am in the process of starting to develop a kind of manifesto or just a way of thinking that brings design and photography together and say, they are a lot closer than you think they are. There is depth in both and there is surface in both. There is shallowness in both. There is deep thinking in both, but to pretend that design by default is just about moving things on the surface and photography by default has deeper meanings within them, I think is really unfair. That the two really tackle each other all the time. In fact, photography wouldn't be anything without design because photography needs to have a context in order to be seen and designers provide that. So. I'm, I'm working on a series of photo books that I'm looking at, which is funny enough where the photo book has now become a big thing. There is a perfect marriage between design and photography and not just that designers will center all the pictures pleasantly, but you can use all the strategies and techniques and ideas in graphic design in order to create new meanings and new ideas and new situations in photography. And it, once again, it's putting the things next to each other which is what graphic design does and what photography does. And I find it really fascinating and exciting, actually, that graphic design is looking to photography, photography into gra graphic design. It's not just one way of doing things. And I also see that with my students who come from different majors, how they bring in different fields, different majors into their major. But there's no just one major on its own very often. And I think that's what's really unique about work and the world. I think the world, that's how we really function in the world today. Oh, yeah. And, and, we, and also in the world, we never see anything apart from all the other things that are surrounding yeah. it, even if try to, right? right? Even now I'm looking at your screen, but behind you is a window and I can see other stuff out there and I have things uh -huh. to the side of me. And so it's all within context, which is what interests me. 
that's why I always like to put all of the these different photographs together and because it all makes for a, a different kind of it starts to take into consideration the reality of all that's around us. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking in a photo book, you're also looking at the rectangle of the book. You're looking at your hands if they're holding the book. You're looking right. at what's around you. You're breathing the air around you. It's all part of this. Uh, also, that a lot of people now looking at the photograph don't know whether they're photographs or design or what mm-hmm. or drawings. And I also like that, too, because the categories that we've created are pretty artificial, or at least they're very porous. Mm -hmm. But I do understand the importance of understanding different fields and really uh, acknowledging their history and celebrating them. But photography actually has a very rich history of abstraction and photo construction and all these other kinds of things as well. It's not as well celebrated. It's, it's more hidden, but it's there. And so I, you know, as I, I do a lot of reading in photography, I'm really trying to understand that more, but I'm also discovering lots of surprising um, precedent for the kind of work. Well, Professor Veneski, I could talk to you a few more hours, obviously, uh, but maybe at this point, I'm going to stop. I'm going to ask you where our listeners can find your work. And I will also share that information on our website and on, on social media for Crazy Bird Podcast. Right. So, so the most recent work where I post things as I'm doing them is on my Instagram feed, which is at Martin Veneski. For most of the photo work, uh, martinveneski.com has photo work that needs to be updated. That's why Instagram is always the most current. Uh, And then my graphic design work is at appetiteengineers.com, which is also being reworked. It also needs to be updated as well. Well, once again, thank you very much, Professor Vineski. As usual, it's been a great pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for finding time in your busy schedule. And I'm looking forward to seeing more work. I always, uh, I don't know, we say follow but you know, not uh, literally, I don't follow you. So no worries. I just follow you on Instagram and other social media, Facebook and Twitter. So it's always a pleasure. And I'm hoping soon, you know, finally to see your work again, somewhere in a museum. I'm really craving, I haven't been to a museum. Well, I have been actually to a museum in Savannah just last week. So it's quite exciting to walk into a museum and I know it's happening slowly. I'm very much looking forward to seeing your work out there in the world, physical world. But, you know, I am grateful for digital tools and digital media and social media that I can still connect with artists and see their work. So that's great. Well, once again, thank you very much, Professor Vaneski. Thank you, Violeta. Thank you for listening to the Crazy Bird Podcast. The Crazy Bird Podcast is hosted by Violeta Kaminska. Our guest for this episode was Martin Veneski. You can find Martin's work on his website at martinveneski.com and appetiteengineers.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Martin Veneski. Our theme music is inspired by Tambourine by French composer Francois Joseph Gosset. The improvisation is performed by Agnieszka Kowali. Nature sounds were recorded by Violeta Kaminska. This episode was recorded, edited, and produced by Violeta Kaminska.